Good morning. I want to start this uh, sermon by telling you a story. I'm uh, 12 years old, and I'm in a forest behind my house on a bike trail, and I'm with my dad. And this is weird because my dad never went biking with me. And why would he? He was born in 1925. He survived the Great Depression, the death of his father, was so poor that at one point he was abandoned by his mother and pretty much raised himself all before the time he was 16. Because of this, life for my dad was business and making sure there was enough money to make sure that we never experienced the lack that he did as a kid. He had no time for biking. And this was weird for me because I knew that he had supported his family from a young age by delivering papers as a kid. He certainly knew how to ride a bike. I still remember him showing me how his shoulders were uneven because of all the papers that he carried on them as a child on his bike route. And looking back, I'm sure that those shoulders were uneven because of far more than just the weight of those papers. But I'm 12 years old, I'm excited to be biking with my dad, and as I flew around a corner in the woods, I was surprised to see my dad, my 68-year-old father, fly even faster around the corner. And I watched, impressed to see how this old man was going to take the turn. And uh, he didn't take the turn. He never turned. He flew off the path, crashed into a tree, landed in the bushes, 68 years old, in a, in a puddle in the woods. And I ran up to him. I'm 12 years old. I run up to him and I say, Dad, are you dead? <laughs> he didn't answer me. <laughs> I said again, Dad, are you dead? But I'm like, quieter this time. I think he's actually dead. And then I kick him as hard as I can in the kidneys. He responded then. I won't say everything that he said to me after I kicked him in the kidneys. But he said, go, he mumbled to me, go get your mother. I race home to get my mom. I bring her back to introduce her. I'm certain that my father is a quadriplegic now. I have no idea what's going on. He's fine. The only thing bruised on him was his ego. My mom and I laugh as we listen to him rant about degenerate bike manufacturers not using pedals for brakes anymore. All is well. I'm safe. I don't have a care in the world. Later that year, I'm golfing in Florida. We went there every March. <clears throat> and I'm riding in a cart beside my dad. And truth be told, I, I really was not much of a golfer growing up. But my dad loved golf. Because of that, I love golf because I love being with him. Um, and I just remember golfing on this one particular day in Florida of that year. I could smell as this cheap disgusting aftershave that he used, this aqua velva aftershave. And I never felt safer than when I was beside him. He was a good man. It's the end of the school year now. I'm at a hamburger, hamburger spot called PJ's. It was right by my school. My mom ordered the fixings. I can still remember the chocolate milkshake. I see her crying. She tells me my dad has cancer. He's got three months to live. And that she's so very sorry. I don't even know what cancer is. It's 1994, there's no Google. And three years later, he's dead. <clears throat> the world isn't safe anymore. And the world felt different after that. And if I'm honest, I'm 39 years old, and every time things go well in my life, if I'm truly honest, I am nagged by this feeling that disaster is just lurking in the shadows. I don't think that anybody is going to disagree with me when I say that our world is not immune from disaster, suffering, and pain. We've just emerged from a global pandemic, and we're still in the process of trying to figure out all the ramifications of it. 
I'm sure you know this more than you did a year ago, but inflation is at a 40-year high. Interest rates are climbing rapidly. I've had lots of conversations with a good friend at work in the past two weeks. He can't sleep at night. He doesn't know how he's going to be able to pay their mortgage. And I've had numerous conversations of people in this church and others who are thinking of leaving this city because it just doesn't seem affordable anymore. So here we are today, gathered together to hear a word from Yahweh. Now there is a story behind this sermon. Providentially, I had actually asked to speak on Psalm 131 in 2019, and I was scheduled to preach it in March of 2020. And I don't know if you remember, but that's really when COVID broke. On March 14th, Prime Minister Trudeau effectively ordered Canadians traveling abroad to come home. On March 17th, Ontario declared a state of emergency. On March 18th, the border was closed. It happened quick. And I preached on Psalm 131 on March 22nd. So Julian on leave, I volunteered to preach to help um, shoulder the preaching load. And given the moment we find ourselves in as a church and as a country, I thought this would be a good text to revisit this morning. So let's begin. We're going to first point here. We're going to look at the chaos and the context in Psalm 131. I first want you to notice where Psalm 131 is in the book of Psalms. First notice that it comes right after Psalm 130. And actually, it's not going to be on the screen, but turn to Psalm 130 now in your Bibles. I'm not going to read it. I'd like you to, though. Psalm 130 is all about pain and suffering. It's a desperate cry for help. And we even see a connection between Psalm 130 and our text for the, mor for the morning, Psalm 131. They actually both end in very similar ways. Look at Psalm 130, verse 7. Let Israel hope in the Lord. Psalm 131 ends in a similar vein. O Israel, hope in the Lord. They're connected. They're meant to be read together. Now notice at the top of the psalm, it says that this psalm is a psalm of ascent. We'll come back to this later, but this is actually a grouping of psalms that start with Psalm 120. And in that grouping of psalms, there are numerous ones where the people of God encounter exceptionally difficult circumstances. There are actually six of them, 120, 124, 125, 126, 129, and 130. God is telling us something here. This is part of the life of the people of God, to go through times of trial, to go through times of pain. And these psalms are meant to provide a grammar and language for us to express ourselves to God in the midst of whatever pain and trouble that we find ourselves in, whatever pain or trouble that you find yourselves in this morning. And as we near the end of these troubled psalms, these desperate cries for help, what do we find? What are we to do? We find Psalm 131. And here we are not to be proud. We are to trust God with a peaceful soul, hoping in Yahweh, our God. So let's look at this text together. My second point is walking in the chaos. Verse 1, Psalm 131 says this. Oh, Yahweh. My heart is not lifted up. 
My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Notice the repetition of three here. Three ways, three things we are not supposed to do. Not lift it up, not raise too high, not things too marvelous for us. Why is this? This corresponds to our entire body, our entire life and soul being involved. Our hearts, our eyes, our souls. This psalm is about our whole person. This psalm is about our whole selves. Here, in essence, we see someone depicted who is not proud. It's a psalm that's an echo of Proverbs chapter 16, verse 5, which says this, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. But another way of looking at this verse would be to ask, what would the opposite of it look like? David Powlison, the great counselor, says it would read like this. My heart is proud. So this is the opposite. This is the antithesis of Psalm 131. David Powlison says this. My heart is proud. I'm absorbed in myself. And my eyes are haughty. I look down on other people. And I chase after things too great and too difficult for me. Look at when the psalmist says, I do not concern myself. In Psalm 131, verse 1. Literally, that means, I do not walk. I do not walk. For those of you that know your Bibles, this is reminiscent of Psalm 1. And all the Psalms hold together from Psalms 1 and 2. And in Psalm 1, the psalmist says, not to walk in the counsel of the wicked or the way of sinners. And here... That same image is used, but now we're not to walk and to concern ourselves with great matters or things too wonderful for us. But we need to be very careful here, and we need to be very clear what David means. David is not saying, this author is not saying that we shouldn't try and understand the world. That's not what he means by great matters. After all, it would be odd for David to say such a thing. The Christian faith is a vibrant intellectual tradition. We've got some heavy hitters in our camp. Augustine, Ambrose, Thomas Aquinas, John Calvin, Herman Bovink. For David, when he's talking about this, this is not anti-intellectualism. He's not chastising someone for trying to think too hard. Never forget the greatest commandment that Jesus says, we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and strength. That is a God-honoring orientation that we are all to have in our respective vocations in our lives. When David refers to great matters or wonderful things in other places in the Psalms, these refer to God's saving acts in Israel's history. What David is saying is that he's not God. He doesn't try to do the things of God. He can't. He knows. And he said this as a king. Psalms and Proverbs, not all of them, but they were written by kings. Glorious in splendor and power. And a king recognized this. He wasn't proud. 
Tremper Longman says this, this commentator. He says, the proud person looks, compares, competes, and is never content. He plans and schemes in his heart as to how he can outdo and outperform. But there's another layer to this. At its core, what this verse is showing us is that this is really about humility. God wants us to be humble as an approach to life. God wants us to trust him. The world is a place that naturally lends itself to confusion and utter chaos. This confusion can lead to an inner churning. And sometimes if you've tasted it in your own life, you can be tempted to be hopeless. Events can seem disconnected. If there's a plot line, and we believe as Christians that there's an author to our story, not just us as individuals, but to us as a church, to us as a country. There's times as we are reading this story, we don't know where it's going. We don't know what the author is up to. And sometimes we can wonder if the author is indifferent to the characters that he's written into this story. But fundamentally, a biblical faith, a God-honoring biblical faith, tells us that there is a creator-creature distinction. We are not God. And only God the creator has access to all knowledge. After all, he made everything. He understands everything. Even now, the Bible says that he upholds everything by his right hand of power. There is a stark divide, an unbridgeable gap between our status as creatures versus God's status as creator. As creatures, in our creatureliness, we don't have access to all the knowledge that God has. Even for Calvin or Aquinas or Augustine, even they saw through a glass dimly. But if we're honest, we expect to. We want to understand absolutely everything. We live in a world of SpaceX and Tesla and artificial intelligence. And so when we encounter suffering in our own lives, we expect and demand to know why. But God always doesn't share his reasons why. And I don't know about you, but I don't have a Bible text that tells me exactly why every particular moment of suffering or pain that happens to you as an individual. There's no Bible verse that's going to tell you for this particular pain, this is the reason why it happened. It's not there. And for some, I think maybe for many of us, if we can't see a reason for our suffering, then we infer there is no reason for suffering. That's a fatal move. And I want to spend a little time just unpacking why that's a, a fatal move this morning. There's a philosopher, um, Alvin Plantinga, and he's pointed out a flaw in this reasoning here with a, a little thought experiment. And he says this. This is a little quirky, but just bear with me. And if you think this is really quirky, this is actually written in a legitimate philosophy paper. So this is, this, this is actually in there. Let's do a thought experiment. Let's say that there's a tent. And I tell you, tell me if there's a St. Bernard inside the tent. In this case, I have every reason to trust what you say, since a St. Bernard is just the sort of thing I would expect you to be able to see inside of a tent. I mean, it's so big. You're going to know right away if a St. Bernard 
is there or not. But now let's change gears. Let's suppose I ask you to look inside the tent, and I ask you to tell me if there are any no inside the tent. And apparently a no is a gnat with a big bite that's small. It's small enough to pass through the netting of a, of a tent and is very small to see. So now let's say I ask you, are there any no in the tent? I have no reason now to trust your answer in this case because you can't see no Here's the problem. We assume that if there's a reason for our suffering, it's more like a St. Bernard than it is like a noceum. I'll say that again. If you're going through pain this morning, and as I've gotten to know a few of you just, as, just recently being onboarded as an elder, I know that some of you are in pain. We assume that if there's a reason for our suffering, it's going to be more like a St. Bernard than a noceum. But this is just assumed, it's not argued for. It's certainly at least possible that we suffer for a reason, but that reason is not something that we can easily detect. So in short, it's illegitimate to move from saying, it appears there's no sufficient reason to justify God in allowing this pain, to therefore, there probably is no sufficient reason to justify God in allowing this pain. I'll say it another way just to kind of help drive this point home. Given the massive gulf between God and us, it's unreasonable to expect that we could know the God-given reason for every permission of suffering or for every COVID pandemic that happens. I still remember the day when my daughter Piper went for her first needles at the pediatrician. A two-year-old thinks that her doctor is a monster, like a bad guy in a Frozen franchise. <laughs> After all, they're being prodded with sharp pieces of metal. And as much as little kids might think about it, there is no real explanation that is good enough to justify the blood and the pain. They don't get it. But as a parent, I know the reason for the pain. I know it's justified. But they don't know, and I'm at a loss to communicate to a two-year-old why it's justified and why it makes sense and why it's worth it. As a people, we are more like kids than we realize. There are many matters beyond our human powers to comprehend. The Bible expects us. Remember those Psalms of Ascent. And that's just from the 120s and the 130s. There's 150 Psalms. And I think at heart they're referencing here Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, which says that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. We don't want there to be secret things. We want to know all of God's reasons for everything that happens. But the author here doesn't expect to know them all. And remember, he's a king. And he knows that there are things too great and too marvelous for him. But we have something that David didn't. We have even more reason to trust God in the midst of whatever is going on in our life or in our life as a country. And just remember too, like I, when I initially preached this, this was March 22nd, this is right in the, the total beginning of the, the chaos of COVID. Because we have Christ. 
28 generations after David was buried in a hole on a hill, God's son, Jesus Christ, lived the perfect life and willingly and lovingly chose to be crucified on another hill. His hands and feet were pierced, his body riveted with pain. He bled and died so that by trusting in him, by believing that his perfect life and death were enough to satisfy the demands of God's justice that we too might be forgiven. And more than that, that Christ's status as the perfect son, not a good son, not a good enough son, a perfect son, that that status might be imputed to us and given to us by faith. David, writing this, sees the gospel in shadows, but we see it in the pure light of day. So yes, like David, we might not know the reasons for why God allows pain and suffering and the plague of the past almost three years and all the ramifications of the past two, three years on our country, on global politics, on churches. But we know the reasons why he allowed the greatest instance of suffering that ever occurred, the death of his own son. We know those reasons. And that trust should lead to the experience that we find in verse 2. We are like a child who has been fed by his mother, resting content. The next point is this, God's peace in the chaos. Verse 2 says this, But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Look how this starts. Verse 2 starts with this but, or in other translations, we'll say surely. This is almost close. One author I read at the time that I wrote this said it was close to like taking an oath. I see, I see struggle here. David is bound and determined to wrestle down his unruly soul. His insides are churning. He's in chaos. And again, we see the repetition of three here, calmed and weaned two times. The author Dennis Tucker says this, the commentator, the image of the weaned child likely refers to an infant who has just come off his mother's breast, still resting upon its mother. The child has received all that is necessary for life and physically enjoys the close bond between mother and child. The young child rests peacefully, assured that her life has been cared for and will continue to be so. Even as the young child trusted that her mother was the source of life, so too the psalmist trusts that his life is being cared for by God. It's a short psalm, it's three verses, but notice the tone of the passage. It's restful, it's content, it's trusting. We have to remember that much in our lives is gift that we don't control. You don't have control over how you look, your abilities. Much of your opportunities in life, even them, are gift. And fundamentally in the Bible, believers were encouraged to pray for their daily bread. Let's face it, most of us, many of us, haven't really had to pray that prayer. When I preached this in 2020, I, I said, I think, predicted we're going to start to be praying that prayer as people were losing their jobs early on. I remember there's a lot of fear about that. But even now in 2022, I was just reading that the cost of food has gone up by more than 10% in Canada this year alone. So how do we escape this chaos and the chaos of ourselves, this inner churning as we reflect upon the world that God has given us? 
David Paulus, that counselor again, says this, we escape ourselves by being loved by Jesus Christ through the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit. The worshiper here is content with God's presence, even though there are many things that he would like God to explain, whatever it was that he was going through. In Isaiah 49, verse 15, God speaks to his people and makes this astonishing comparison. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child that she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. The bond between a mother and her nursing infant could not be stronger physically and emotionally, yet God says it is only an infinitely weaker analogy of his unbreakable love for us and his joy in us. But at this time, I think as we continue, I mean, like, I mean, COVID's over, but we're now into this, things are still kind of not really settled. Nationalism's coming back. Inflation's coming back. It's an unsettling time in different ways from when I first looked at this text at the beginning of COVID, but it still feels unsettled. And at this time, I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's other answers to the chaos in this, this inner churning. We actually saw this all through COVID. And one of the good things about the past few years of COVID is it worked like a grenade in a small room, tearing to shreds most of the supposed answers to suffering and tragedy and exposed them for what they really are, hollow and facile. I'm reminded of Isaiah 57, verses 20 to 21. The wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace for the wicked, says my God. And yet some of these answers still endure. Let's look at one, just one. I'm not an Instagram guy, uh, but one thing that I've, I've noticed and I've heard people talk about is this exhortation to look within in times of chaos. I see this in my own role as a guidance counselor at a, at a boarding school. This is kind of like a refrain, kind of look within, you're gonna find the answers there. I can't think of worse advice. I, I can't even conceive of actually worse advice for people. Rebecca McLaughlin has some great comments for this. She says this, if I told you that you had to stay in your bedroom for the rest of your life, you'd be sad. Look, let's be honest, your room's a mess. My room's a mess. It may have some books, but it's not enough to keep you going for the rest of your life. A room is too small to live in for the whole of an adult life. Compared to looking to the God of the universe, the God of Jesus Christ, to Jesus Christ himself, looking within is like staying in your bedroom. If we look to God, we have a whole universe to explore. We have ideas beyond our wildest imagining, love beyond our wildest dreams. There's a name for staying in a room for the rest of your lives. It's called prison. And no one would choose that voluntarily. So don't. Turn to God. My last point is our calling in the chaos. Verse 3 says this, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. I mentioned earlier that this was a psalm of ascent. Jewish travelers would sing, would sing these psalms when they would march to Jerusalem three times a year. Why? So they'd feel united. Whether in joy or sorrow, 
whether in pain or hardship, they were in it together. They were God's people. And we are in this together. You're not alone. I want to say that again. You're not alone. And you're suffering. Whenever you suffer and however you suffer, you're not alone. But I don't want to pass over some amazing details in this verse. This insignificant family of roaming Bedouin tribesmen, God called by name. This insignificant people group, God marked and stamped them for himself. This is then a mildly significant, barely significant buffer state. A country wedged between other powerful Middle Eastern countries, still called by name, still chosen by God. And that name, Israel, that name Israel that's in this psalm in verse 3, that's your name and that's our name this morning. We, the church, are called the Israel of God in Galatians 6. But it's more personal than that. In Christ, God has elected you as individuals. Brad, Billy, Prashant, EJ, Bibi, Hannah, Jason, Sony. God has called you all by name as his own. He's chosen you and he knows you. And this God who has called you by name has called you to hope in him. And here's what you don't want to do this morning. You don't want to scatter your hope everywhere. When you suffer, and the psalm isn't clear on what the suffering is. There's just like an expectation that there's going to be tough seasons in the life of Israel, and the life of individuals in Israel. But whatever it is for you this morning, and if it's not for you this morning, that's great. But it is for other people in this room. The temptation is going to be, we're going to be encouraged to hope in our government, to hope in medical research, to hope in our banks and creditors to be merciful to us, hope in the central bank to do the right thing, whatever that is, and I don't know what it is. We're going to be tempted to hope in our church leaders. Those aren't necessarily bad things. Those are all good things. But a good thing used for a bad end is a waste. And God doesn't want you to hope in those things this morning. He doesn't want me to hope in those things. David here, who certainly knew suffering and lack, put his hope in God and God alone. And he directed that hope. He exhorted the people of God to do the same as he did. And we're not just to think of ourselves. Charles Spurgeon, commenting on this, has a great quote that kind of sums up, I think, a, a driving force in verse 3 where he says this. One who is weaned from the self thinks of others. David thinks of his people and he loses himself in his care for Israel. God's call on you this morning and upon me is to lose ourselves in our care for our church and our community. Who is in your circle of influence? And if you don't have one, get one. Get to know people. This is not the time to depend on others to minister to others. You are to minister to others. In the life of a church, there is going to be people always suffering. Look for them and help. 
As I consider this church, when I wrote these words back in 2020, I wrote, who in our church is falling through the cracks? Who haven't you seen for a while? Who's struggling? Who's lonely? These words still abide in 2022, even though COVID has passed. This is our call as the people of God, regardless of whether you yourself are experiencing pain and suffering or not. The text here says both now and forevermore. For the early readers of this, for much of Jewish history, this had real immediate application. Israel needed to settle in for the long haul. The people of God were continually buffeted by persecution and trial, even suffering the indignity of being governed by hostile nations, their temple in rubble. And to them, the psalmist says they need to give up any attempt to try and bring in the kingdom of God by their own doing. That is what those with a lofty heart and eyes would do. They need to be prepared to wait for God and to hope in him forever. But the fundamental issue is not just how long Israel would wait, but while they wait, they must do it from a posture of trust. So what can we do? How can we have hope? What can we encourage others to do? I want you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. I want to close with just unpacking this for us, for immediate application in our life and in my life in particular. Some key points are here. What are, so Philippians 4, verse 6 and 7, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So what are we supposed to pray about? Number one, everything. Everything. You have the Father's ear at all times. He's not indifferent. He's not busy. You have his full attention when you turn to him. So as we turn to God, we offer everything in prayer. As we make a request to God, what will happen? It says this. This is remarkable. The peace of God will rule our hearts and minds. But often, this is not our experience. We stay on our knees and we stay there worrying. There's just no closure. One writer, Doug Wilson, says this, we try to get the issue shut, but the latch just doesn't click. And what are we trying to do? We're trying to figure out a way to guard the peace of God. But that's not how this works. Here, the peace of God is your armor. It's actually not fragile. It's guarding you. You don't need to protect it. We see this actually in the life of Christ. Consider this from the life of Christ. Before the crucifixion, Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane praying to his father with desperate and urgent cries. He knows what's coming. But you see what he did earlier? He shares a meal with his disciples. He breaks bread with them and he institutes in that moment what will become the Lord's Supper. And he says this, this is my body broken for you. But if you look at that text, it's actually interesting what it says before that. Before he breaks the bread, it says he gave thanks. This was not an easy Thanksgiving. This was not an emotional Thanksgiving. This was a Thanksgiving by faith alone. And Jesus is a model for us here this morning. We all need to remember that no servant is greater than his master. 
have an extended quote from the same commentator, um, Doug Wilson. He says this, If the Lord Jesus could give thanks at the beginning of his trial, and there has never been any trial like it, then we can give thanks at the beginning of our trials. So be honest to God. We come before the Lord with an anxiety, a worry. We have trouble, and it troubles us. We lay it before God like Hezekiah in the temple. We present the difficulty, and we don't put three layers of holy speak varnish on it. In other words, we're not required to pretend that we are not troubled when we actually are. We are not required to pretend that our troubles are not troubles. Look at the psalmist. The psalms are in our Bible for very good reasons, and one of those reasons is to teach us to pray. When it comes to his troubles, the inspired psalmist is frequently a noisy bucket. Presenting our petitions and requests to God should be an honest activity. Let it all out. But here's the strange part. St. Paul tells us to do this, but he also adds that we are to do it with thanksgiving. So keep a Spotify playlist nearby. And when you have laid all your troubles before the Lord, pick a song of thanksgiving and sing it. This is the pattern. Present, thank, rest. And remember, it's not your job to protect the peace of God. His peace is there to protect you. And that's what we find in Psalm 131. We see David, who was unburdened himself of his troubles before God. We see him protected and governed by the peace of God in Psalm 131. But I want just to note for some of you that may struggle with this. We don't know the time horizon on these things, Psalm 130 and Psalm 131. This is in the context of an enduring relationship with God, with prayers laid out before the Father. But the pattern and the procedures are still there for us today, for this morning, for this week. Colossians 3.15 says this, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you indeed were called in one body, and be thankful. So this is not just an individual thing. Christianity is not just you and a YouTube web clip or a YouTube short of some famous preacher from another part of the world. It's not for a chat room. It's for people in this room. It's a corporate church thing. We are called to this together. And we are called to this this morning by the word of God to a very particular thing. So what should always be included in these prayers? What should you be including in your prayers this week? And not just this week, but every week. Thanksgiving. Does this make sense? Is it supposed to? No, this, the text says it surpasses all understanding. But God has promised to bless us and protect us with the indomitable peace of God if we would, like Jesus, offer up to God our anxious concerns and to do so with thanksgiving. And as we do that, not just as individuals, but as a church, May we find our souls content and rested like a weaned child with its mother. I started this sermon with a story, and I'd like to end it by sharing one more story, and then I'll stop. It's not mine, though. This is actually my wife Robin's uh, story. Sorry, I forgot to remind you about this. <laughs> <laughs> she actually shared these thoughts with some. you got to remember, like, when I first wrote this sermon, it was like March. This is March 22nd. Like, COVID was just, we didn't know what was going on. Um, and she shared this story with some of her friends. I was quite moved by them. So I've kind of, I've edited it a little bit for kind of our context, you know, just today, like we're not in that same world, but still, it's a different world, but it's still churning. 
I want you to listen to this. Now, as you listen, I want to think of your own stories of pain or suffering. And just to be clear, with the community orientation, if you're not going through a time of pain or suffering, you know, like there's, there's plenty of people that are. So think of them and their own heartache. And take heart from how God can transform our suffering into something beautiful. So this is Robin's word. So if you don't, if you don't like it, you can talk to her. Uh, I don't remember. I was almost going to do a voice, actually. I was going to, I'm not going <laughs> to. I don't know if you know this about me, but my faith is the result of the Spanish flu. Well, perhaps that is not entirely true because of personal commitment and God's dealing with me as an individual, but there was a direct line between Canada's experience with the Spanish flu, which killed 55,000 Canadians, and my deep roots in the faith. You see, Charles and Joyce Ritchie were deeply in love. Their love letters are still around. He was a young hotshot lawyer in Toronto, and she was a doting housewife. They had a lovely home on Spadina Avenue and three small children. And then the Spanish flu hit. And I could check with family historians to see exactly how it happened, as I'm not entirely sure. But what I do know is that he died, leaving her with three children under five years old. And his family legend has it, she was totally broken uh, by the loss. And one day, while crying in desperation on the stairs, in her front hall, she prayed for help. She said something to the effect of, Lord, if you are real, please send help. And as she sat there, the doorbell rang. And outside stood a person from a church. Once simply a church-going woman, Joyce's face became real to her. And through this act of God's goodness, she found herself deeply committed to Christ and never looked back. <clears throat> through this loss, she was found. <clears throat> I never met my great-grandmother, but the decision she made to follow Christ has deeply affected my family. My own grandmother and great-aunt were great women of faith whose presence in my life still shape who I seek to become. In fact, Piper's middle name, Joy, is a nod to Joyce, whose deep faith has set in motion generations of faithfulness. And when I consider thing like, things like my cousin Robbie's ministry at Hope Oakville, or my aunt and uncle who served on the mission field, or the other ways my family has worked within the church and parachurch organizations, I cannot help but think of Joyce. While my faith is my own, the work and faith of this woman have impacted us all deeply. So how do I feel about the coronavirus? I've seen the work of God. I've seen how deep loss has resulted in his glory. I've benefited from tragedy and can trace my spiritual lineage to a pandemic that killed millions. Perspective matters. And I know that somewhere in glory, Joyce now stands seeing how the Lord used it. But she didn't see it in her life. But she knows now. <clears throat> we, right now, are all characters in a story. And God is the author of this story. And when we suffer, the story doesn't end. <clears throat> The author of our stories is making the plot interesting. And our stories then become the stories, the sorts of stories that if it were a book, you would buy it at an indigo and you'd stay up late in the night reading about it. Like any good story, there's tension. 
All good stories have pain and all good stories have suffering. The only question is, what part will you play in this story? What character will you play? Will you churn and cast your hopes and fears everywhere but on Christ your King? Will you walk away from today ignoring what Christ has called you to do? He's thundered from his word this morning. Will you be the character who slinks off into the shadows and retreats into a prison of the self and individualism? Or will you do your part and just read your lines? They're here in the word of God. Present your concerns. Thank your God till your bones creak. And allow him to guard you with his peace and then call others to do the same. Don't let them slide through the cracks. As I think John Piper would say, don't waste your pain and don't waste your suffering. Amen. Let's pray.